All right, I have a question. Sure you do. I've been trying this experiment lately, and I wonder if you can help me out with it. I'm having a problem. Sure. Can you help me? So I've been doing You want to light the match after you've laid the fuse all the way down the hallway. If I want to blow up my house? <laughs> so unfortunately, I don't have a house. As you know, I'm homeless. But I thought you liked being homeless and possessionless. I know. That's why I don't need to know how to light the fuse. But here's my problem. I've been doing a project... Like many people try this, I want to get better at photography. I really, Why? I really love looking at good photographs, mm -hmm. so I would like to be able to at least make, in my lifetime, one good photograph. So in order to get better, I've been taking what I think is one interesting photograph a day. Usually it takes me all day to find an interesting situation to really? take a photo of. And you're actively looking? Actively looking all day. Sounds like a pretty time-consuming pursuit. It sort of is, for one small photograph. And then what I do is I'll post it the next day on Instagram, Instagram.com slash Altature <laughs> for that QOTD discount. And uh, from uh, free to what? From free you pay to people 10 cents for every time you're free. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I post it every day. And for me, it's not just a photograph. I also will write a little story around it, but very short, like a couple of paragraphs, like why this photograph is meaningful to me. So it's different than, like, let's say, Humans of New York, which is a photograph about the subject. My little stories are kind of about the subject and what it means to me personally. and uh, But one thing I have found since I've started this, I'm only on day 16, so it's not like this has been this huge effort, but since I've started this, I found my own writing has suffered. It's almost like we get a certain amount of creative energy per day, and I feel like this effort to do a single photograph a day and then write some little kind of interesting caption slash story around it has been sucking away my... Uh, writing energy. Do you find this happens to you ever? Because you're involved in multiple creative efforts. Like, how do you kind of juice yourself up for more than one creative piece of output at a, at a time? So, are you asking about literally just the opportunity costs? Like, the, you're spending time and no, bandwidth on a thing, and therefore you have less for the other thing? I or guess you're saying that. I guess I'm. You think, as opposed to a normal question of the day podcast, I'm legitimately asking. I'm asking the question for advice. Like, should I? Maybe. I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, I should so I. So you want to know whether it's what whether it's worth it or whether it's worth it or is if there the a way? The question is: Am I surprised? No, not at all. Because I mean, if you're spending even 15 minutes trying to think hard about some other problem that you're trying to editorially or intellectually solve, then of course that's going to take away. I mean, you could one could argue that if you're creative in one area, maybe it boosts energy in another area. But I you're guess saying, it could. But is there some I kind mean, of energy... creative depletion that occurs during a day? I think both are true. I think there are certain kinds of intellectual or creative activity that can complement and spur on others. But in terms of energy, which is, seems to be what you're talking about, then I do think that your energy is obviously not finite and it becomes depleted. So I would be shocked if you had said that spending a couple hours every day looking for this one photograph to take has made me write double the amount in a given day. I would say that would be a, a really bizarre Outcomes. So I think the, the outcome you're describing is not at all surprising. If the outcome, but if the question is, what do I do about it? Or how do I yeah, you what know, do you, if consume? You were me, what would you do? Like, well, I love to write every day, but I'm really interested in learning how to take a good photograph. So look, life is full of trade offs, right? Every time I decide I'm going to spend one hour doing X, that's an hour I will not be able to spend doing Y. So I would ask myself, 
how much is this hour of my time worth? And if I'm if I'm adding it to column X, am I really willing to subtract it to, from column Y? So like every decision, every opportunity I get, I look at it and say, if I say yes to this, what am I inevitably saying no to instead? Well, well so this begs the question because I know you're involved in a lot of creative efforts. I don't know if you write every day, but you clearly you write. You do a radio show. You do a podcast. You have, probably have other things going on. What's what, what's a day in the life? What do you do? What's your creative? I do work day? pretty many hours. For me, there is definitely a feeling, just like a, a, a sensation of having kind of a, a fuel tank. That hopefully, if you sleep well and wake up feeling good, that the fuel tank feels relatively full. And in the morning, I feel like I got a, I've got a lot of fuel, and I can really work hard and intensely concentrate. It depends what I'm doing. If I'm writing a podcast script or episode or preparing to interview people and I want to write the right kind of questions or if I'm working on a, 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 co- a newspaper column or a book chapter or whatever, that requires, for me, the highest level of um, you know, intensity and concentration. But in terms of what you're talking about, I think it's, a little, I think it's two things. A, you're depleted. I think that energy, that creative energy is finite. So, yeah, you're definitely going to be depleting it if you're going to be doing a secondary activity. But also, I think in addition to like the physical and even mental energy, there is also this notion of like you've spent your creative momentum on one thing and then it's hard, even if you have the energy to do the second thing, uh, it's hard to switch gears. And that's what I find is that like if I'm working on a book, it's really, really hard to get and stay in gear but then once you're in gear, you definitely don't want to leave because you know how hard it is to get back in and stay. So there are some creative pursuits for people. Like, I've never written an opera. I've never written a song cycle, but I've written a lot of songs, right? What's a song cycle mean? You know, connected songs. Mm. And um, What's an example of connected songs? An opera. <laughs> but there are others, you know, musicals and classical song cycles, songs that relate to each other, feed into each other. So that to me is kind of the equivalent of like book versus article, right? I've written a lot of article versions. I've written a lot of songs. And like there is like a certain vibe and a feel to being in that groove with writing the song, both musically and time-wise and melody-wise and lyric-wise. But that if I were writing a song cycle, if they were connected, I would think that would be a much more intensive, um, it would have to be a much more intensive kind of cordoning off of time and energy for that. So what I'm hearing you say about you're doing this photo project, first of all, that sounds awesome. But second of all, I think maybe the miscalculation is that in your mind, it seems as though because the output is relatively tiny, one photograph a day, that... Tiny bit of writing with it, a couple that, of paragraphs. Right, but that you seem surprised that the input is somehow pretty depleting. Yes. And I don't think you should be because, like, think about if you're, you know, writing advertising copy for BBDO or J. Walter Thompson or something. You know, you might have 10 people working half a year to come up with the right half a sentence for a phrase. So I don't think there's necessarily a direct outcome, a direct uh, correlation, rather, between what seems to be the volume of the output and the intensity of the input. And it sounds to me like you're stretching your creative brain. You're doing something that's different than what you've been doing before. And it's it requires a lot of you, and you seem a little bit disappointed that the that it takes away um, input for other projects. But I wouldn't be disappointed. I would just say, look, this means a lot to me. I'm going to do it for you know a month, 
And if at the end of a month, I'm going to look at my output on my photo of the day, and I'm going to look at how much input it took. And I'm especially going to look at the opportunity cost and what that input, uh, using that input for the photo project took away from other stuff. And then at some point, you can literally do your little cost-benefit analysis on it and say, you know what? Here I am with 30 photographs that I'm incredibly proud of. I've boosted my Instagram followers from, you know, 800 to 20,000. But at the end of the day, what means more to me or is more valuable to me or more meaningful to me somehow is maintaining a consistency of output of writing. And therefore, I'm going to look at the photo thing as an experiment that I tried it's not a failure. It's just a thing I tried, and I'm going to shut it down. Or you might decide the opposite. You might become a full-time photographer. Hold on. Listen to this ad, and we'll be right back. How do you feel about the experience your customers have when they call your business? Better yet, how do they feel about it? The truth is, all those answering services are pretty much the same. And in order to truly wow your callers with the best possible service, you've got to check out Ruby Receptionists. Ruby Receptionists is the top-ranked virtual receptionist service by both users of the service and by their dedicated staff, earning them accolades for the past four years from Fortune magazine as a top-five place to work. Ruby's receptionists are available when your business needs them to handle your calls 13 hours a day, five days a week. They provide multiple ways for clients to get in touch. You can simply forward your existing business phone number to Ruby's super-friendly team of professionals or have Ruby provide you with an additional phone number in your local area code or set up a toll-free 1-800 number. Ruby's advanced calling system ensures that your receptionist knows details about your callers before answering. They'll think your receptionist is right there in your office instead of at Ruby's state-of-the-art facilities in Portland, Oregon. It's like having a model full-time employee for a fraction of the cost. There's only one way to guarantee your callers a five-star experience, and that is with Ruby. Hurry to callruby.com slash QOTD, like question of the day, to get free activation, a $95 value. That is callruby.com slash QOTD. Thanks. What do you like in a good photograph? I'm, I'm taking feedback from everyone. So my wife's a photographer, although she hasn't really... That's how you met. Mm, yeah, yep. Yeah. So she is what I consider a great document. She's a, what's called a documentary photographer. So a lot of people would call it a photojournalist, which is similar, but in the whole school of um, art and work that she came up in, um, a documentary photographer was not so much chasing a news story as kind of embedding oneself in some kind of situation or scenario. So often you'd go move somewhere or, or spend time with a certain group of people or in some kind of conflict. Often it was a war or a conflict, and then produce essentially a photo essay or a, a, just, just a big body of photographs from which you'd create a photo essay. So, so she started learning in New York and worked at a, an amazing agency called Magnum, which is kind of the photographer's photography collective. Yeah, is it still around? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then her the first kind of big story she went and embedded herself in was she moved to Romania right after Ceausescu fell. 
And there was a lot of chaos going on there, obviously, socially, politically, economically. Then from there, soon after she moved to Russia, soon after Glasnost started to happen. And again, same thing, not chaos quite, but a lot of change economically, politically, socially, culturally. And so she lived in Russia off and on for five or six years and went to the first Gulf War and the first Chechen War, first Afghan, all the, the ver- first version of all these wars. And so she did do a lot of war photography and what people recognize as photojournalism. And so she, um, I learned a lot about photography through her, even though everything I'm describing now is before we met. We met after she'd moved back to the States. And um, there are a lot of things about photography, a good photograph, that photographers see very, very differently from most people. So it's, it, it's not, not, let me ask, though, was she ever, like, in danger? Like, if, I feel like when you get up close with a, it's not like you could be in your hotel room writing, like, a, a journalistic right. report. Like, with a photograph, you have to get right in people's faces. So, she ever get in danger? Like, how did she? Yeah, so she did get in danger, but it wasn't, so, it's interesting you say, did she get in danger because of the getting up close? So, the getting up close is not what necessarily got her in danger, but she was one time, uh... I guess the word you'd use is arrested um, by Russian soldiers in Chechnya. It was somewhere between an arrest and a kidnap where the Russian uh, military apparently thought that she and a couple of other photographer colleagues were some kind of spy, and uh, they weren't, but they were held, you know, arrested and held, and she was very, uh, you know, scared, thought she might die, et cetera, et cetera. So there were, that was the biggest run-in, but there were others. It was, she definitely put herself in danger a lot. Did you know her at that point? No, no. Did she describe it? Did, did she, like, cry when she was afraid she was going to die? She did not cry. She's, um, she's... Stoic. A, she's, I don't know about stoic, but she's, I mean, she, the reason she would not cry is because she would not want to indicate fear or, mm. you know, uh, weakness. How'd she get out of that situation? Uh, they finally decided that she was not a member of some Slavic assassination brigade and that mm. she, in fact, was an American photographer mm. and they let her go. But, um, yeah, no, it was a, an incredibly intense period. The The quality of her work was extraordinary. Um, one reason, you know, before we met, one reason we were set up on a blind date, I was at the New York Times Magazine. We put together 100 years of photography in the Times Magazine episode uh, issue and um, that was my assignment, and one of her photographs was in there, and so um, so I knew I knew her work, and I knew her work was great. And then when she moved back to the states, I had a chance to meet her, so we met, and um, not long after, you know, started going out, as the kids say, and um, got married. So I I loved her photography before I knew her, and loved her, but she taught me a lot about it, and looking at her work, and then looking at photographs in many places around the world with her as a as a guide has been really instructive. The single biggest impediment that I think most amateur uh, photographers make, and I think from having me just glanced very quickly at your photographs, very quickly, I think you don't have this impediment, which is that it does take a lot of courage or, you know, whatever you call it, foolhardiness, to insert yourself as a photographer in someone else's face and in their space. And so most beginning photography, you see a lot of people shooting nice pictures of sunsets and forests and bridges and crowds. And there might be some great photographs of sunsets and forests and bridges and crowds, but what I think of as the most compelling documentary photographs in history are always going to be the ones where you are capturing a moment of someone's life. That involve right. That involves an intense it. moment of someone's life. Right, right. And that means you just need to be fairly, I don't know what the word is, not aggressive necessarily, but you have to you're you're really providing a translation service for the viewer. You are putting yourself in a place where 
most people just don't have the opportunity or courage to be. And that and that's really hard. And sometimes you will get yelled at and kicked at, and maybe spat at and so on. Sometimes you ask for permission, sometimes you don't, sometimes you ask for permission after the fact. So I think the single biggest first step is to remember that you're not there to take a, a pretty snapshot necessarily. You are there to document something, to be a witness to something that everybody who comes along after seeing it will not have had the opportunity to be there for themselves. And look, it's one of the reasons that still photography, you could argue that still photography and the power thereof have diminished a lot over the past 50 years, although I would argue that it's still fairly strong. But one of the one of the reasons that still photography remained a very, very prominent medium even after the invention of every kind of video and so on was because there's something in the captured moment and curating that one moment that was captured that allows you to look at it as the viewer and be absorbed in it and learn about that situation, feel the emotion in a way that very few other media do. So I think it's a medium worth pursuing aggressively. So I think if you're falling behind or unable to do some of the other stuff you do and that you know gives you some utility or some pleasure, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know. This might be the thing that leads to the next five years of happiness and utility and excitement in your life. And I say go for it with a full heart and full energy, but just don't beat yourself up for the fact that, of course, it's going to diminish your energy in the other areas. Well, Stephen, thank you for the advice. You're welcome, James. Can't wait until next week for more QOD. Hear a bit of our next show right after this. I think most answering services are basically all the same. It's hard to find one that stands out. I thought that way until I ran into Ruby receptionists. Wow your callers with the virtual receptionist service with the five-star Yelp rating, Ruby receptionists. Hurry to call ruby.com slash QOTD to get free activation, a $95 value. That's callruby.com slash QOTD. Next time on Question of the Day. Talked about this with nutritionists. I've talked about this with my 14-year-old daughter, who's the healthiest person I know. Is fruit good for you or bad for you? Everyone says, oh, it turns into fructose, which is sugar. I can't believe eating a strawberry or a blackberry is like eating a Twinkie. Is fruit good for you or bad for you? Yes. Question of the Day is produced and mixed by Nathan Rossborough with Allison Hockenberry. 